All right, well, get your Bible and turn with me to Daniel chapter four. And if you don't have a Bible, no worries. If a friend brought you and said, hey, come check this church out. They're not very traditional and I kind of like it. And, and you came in without a Bible, no worries whatsoever. We have two really big Bibles on either side of the platform. We're gonna put all the scriptures up there for you so you don't feel bad about that at all. We're so glad to have you. But get your Bible if you have one. If not, we'll have it on the screen and turn to Daniel chapter four. And we started a series of messages last week called counter culture, counter culture. And, and this is kind of what we're talking about. How do we live for God in a world or a culture that seems to be moving away from him very rapidly? How do we stand in our faith and in our godly values in a world that doesn't seem to embrace them and sometimes seems to war against them? And, and that's what we're talking about. And for that reason, we're looking at the book of Daniel because Daniel kind of really gives us, well, it gives us a lot. It's 12 chapters, six are history and six are prophecy. Daniel um, uh, was around around 600 BC is when Daniel was, when this book is kind of written and when all this kind of takes place. Um, that's about 600 years before Jesus. It's about 3,400 years since Adam. And Daniel's considered the last of the major prophets of the Bible. In fact, he's kind of chronologically, it's not so much this way, your Old Testament's not in chronological order, but chronologically, he's towards the end of the Old Testament because the Old Testament stops at about 400 BC where Malachi kind of says his last amen, and then there's 400 signs years. We're using the book of Daniel because it's set in a place called Babylon, which would be modern day Iraq. And here's what's happened. God's people have been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And so now, as they would do in those days, in fact, the Roman Empire was the first to not do this. The Roman Empire would colonize when they took over a place. But before then, like in Babylon, they would conquer a place and they would bring the people captive or bring them into captivity or exile into Babylon and teach them their culture and their ways. And so that's what's happened. They've captured, basically, Jeremiah prophesied to Israel and said, hey, if you don't follow God, you're going to fall into the hands of the world. And by the way, it still works that way. Way, there's not three choices. We think there's three choices like my way, the devil's way, and God's way. There's really just two follow God or fall into the hands of the world. That's your only two choices, right? And so they didn't follow God and they fell into the hands of the world and they were all taken to Babylon. And so Daniel writes this and we really have these four main characters Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now that's their Hebrew names. Right, You would know the latter three by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel's Babylonian name was Belteshazzar. And so part of culture was renaming them, and we talked about that last week. Hopefully you'll listen to the podcast or, or get that on YouTube or, how, or the app, however you watch that. And so it kind of zooms in on these four Hebrews that have been taken out of their home and out of their culture, and they've kind of been brought you know, through captivity, but now they're planted, if you will, and brought into Babylonian culture. And so what the, the story tells us, it, it tells us these stories of these four Hebrews that say, we're going to stand for God in a culture that is against God. And that's where you get the stories of the fiery furnace and Daniel's in the lion's den, right? And, and the handwriting on the wall. It's these four Hebrews that say, hey, in a culture that bows to everything, we will not bow to anything except God. And, and so this is, this is kind of the context, and that's why we're using 
the book of Daniel. And so this weekend um, is one of the more challenging messages because we're going to talk about Babylon. And we're going to talk about the fact that it really isn't a locality as much as it is a mentality. And that it's still very much alive and well. And what we've said in this series is we're not going to be changed by the world. We're going to change the world. Right? And so let me pray and we'll jump into this. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, your word, according to David, is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Your word shows me the right way. And God, according to the writer of Hebrews, your word does surgery on my heart, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's powerful and it's alive and it pierces and divides even my soul and my spirit. And God, it even discerns my own thoughts and intentions. God, when I'm not even sure exactly what's going on with me, your word knows and your word shows me what's actually going on in my own heart. And God, we are so thankful for your word. We would be lost without it. And so God, as we prepare to hear your word, God, actually, we're preparing for heart surgery. We're preparing for you and your word to pierce and divide and discern. And God, we are going to hear your word and we're going to be changed by it. And we're going to leave here looking more like you, being more who you've created us to be. We're going to leave here not to be changed by the world. We're going to be changed in your presence so we can go change the world. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So let's talk about Babylon. I think Babylon, and I'm going to show you it all the way through the Bible really quickly. Uh, it's the root of all sin, all wickedness. Um, it, it's the root of all ungodliness in the world. Babylon is actually a spirit, and it was a spirit before it was a place. And when that place fell, it was the spirit was still here. And, and so we see it emerge actually in Genesis chapter 3. Shocker, spoiler alert, Satan is actually the driver of the spirit of Babylon, right? And this is the spirit that really develops culture in any pagan culture, any culture that does not honor God, um, no matter what what continent it's on or what country it's in, this is the root. And I'll show you that. But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are having a good time. They're naked eating fruit salad, petting cheetahs, hanging out in the garden. Life is good, right? And then this serpent comes up to them and says, hey, um, did God really say you couldn't eat of that tree? And they're like, yeah, God said we can't eat of that tree. Um, we can eat of every other tree, just not that tree. If we eat of that tree, we're going to die. And Satan comes with his first lie, which was in like his second breath, right? And he says, oh, oh, that's not really true. God knows if you eat of that tree, you're going to be more like him. And so Satan immediately kind of cozies up to them. And this is how Satan cozies up to you. He says, hey, I'm for you. I want to help you enjoy life the way it's supposed to be enjoyed. And God's trying to keep you from the good stuff. But I'm here to help you. I'm promoting you. I, I'm your buddy. Like, I, I want you to know you've been lied to. Like, this thing right here, this is going to be more fun. This is going to be so much more fulfilling. This is going to be so much more exciting. I want you to know I'm for you. And God just doesn't know what he's talking about. And so you kind of see this, this backbone of Babylon in Satan's biggest lie because here is what the spirit of Babylon does. Here's what it's all about. 
being self-promoting while being God-demoting. It's all about promoting self and demoting God. And I'll come back to this, but just so you'll know, Satan was an angel who was kicked out of heaven. And why was he kicked out of heaven? Because he wanted to promote himself and demote God. And that's kind, of the, that's kind of the driving force behind the spirit of Babylon. It's always trying to promote self. Hey, I'm for you. You should be able to do it. You should live this way. It's all going to be good. God doesn't know what he's talking about. And that old ancient archaic book, man, the thing needs to be thrown away. I mean, that, that couldn't apply today. It was written hundreds of years ago. And so this is what Satan does. And he makes, he makes you think, I'm all about you. I'm your buddy. I'm here to help. And so we see it in Genesis 3. By Genesis 11, it's turned into a group of people who are going to build a tower. We call it the Tower of Babel. And here's what they said. Hey, we're so awesome. We can get to heaven without God. We'll just build a tower. Like we don't need God, right? We're, we're, we're more advanced. <laughs> like we're an advanced culture. It's a new society. We, we got it all figured out. And so they decide they're going to build this tower. In Genesis 11 verse 4, it says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Self-promoting, God-demoting. Hey, let's build ourselves a tower. Let's make a name for ourselves. And so we know the story. God comes down and God confuses their language. And we see that in Genesis 11 verse 9. It says, that's why it's called Babel. The word Babel actually means confusion. It's called Babel because God came down and confused their language and scattered them over the face of the earth. Um, the root of what, what Babylon, this, this, this lie, this undercurrent, self-promoting, God-demoting, here's what it produces, confusion. And I don't think you have to use your holy imagination. If you watch the news at any time this week, you're going to find out we live in a very confused world. We don't know who God is. We don't know who we are. We don't know what sex is for. We don't know what orientation we are. When an 18-year-old walks into a school and starts murdering other students, let me help you. He is confused. And we live in a confused. Why is it? Because this, this is what the Babylonian culture does. It brings confusion. Anytime we're self-promoting and God-demoting, we're going to wind up confused, right? We, we see Babylon, by the way, all the way through the Bible. Jesus talks about it. He says you can't serve God and mammon. Most people think that's money. The reference is money, but mammon was actually a Babylonian god. And he's saying, hey, you can't rely on yourself or rely on money and rely on me. You got to choose, right? And, and then we see it in the book of Revelation. Babylon is judged. In fact, in Revelation 17 and 18, it even tells us that this spirit of Babylon has gotten in the church. Shocker. And, and, and then it is judged. And this is, it's going to be judged because Revelation is a prophetic book. And so this is what it's saying. If Babylon is still, is, is still going to be judged then, that means it's still around now. Right? If it's going to be judged then, it's still around now. And so in Revelation 17, 18, it talks about Babylon being judged. Revelation 17, verse 5, it says, The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Here's what it's saying. Every abomination on the earth, she mothered it. Like every bit of ungodliness and sin, Babylon's the mom. She birthed it. Started in Genesis 3, 
runs throughout the entire Bible and will be judged in, in Revelation 17. In fact, we see Isaiah prophesies the fall of Babylon. I want to show you this because I want to show you what Babylon says. We, Babylon, self-promoting, God demoting, right? But more than that, Babylon um, is... It brings about confusion, but what does Babylon say? Well, Isaiah 47 verse 8, it says, Now then listen, you lover of pleasure. There's Babylon. I know our world's not a lover of pleasure at all. <laughs> Nervous laughter. Lounging in your security. It's always self-reliant. Babylon self-reliant. And saying to yourself, look, this is what the Spirit says. I am... And there is none besides me. I am. There's, I'm what really matters. My way is right. I am. There's no other way. This is really all about me. That's what it says. And so with that, I want to jump to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, um, verse 1. And we're going to talk about how Daniel... It's a cool part of the story because this is Nebuchadnezzar who has really a conversion experience and begins to exalt God and acknowledge God. And we're going to see what transpired to bring him to that point. Um, and so in Daniel chapter 4, he has a dream and Daniel interprets it. But the way Daniel chapter 4 is written, Nebuchadnezzar is actually telling the story. So it's kind of like all these events transpired. And after they all transpired, then Nebuchadnezzar tells us the story. So it's kind of like a flashback, if you will, because it's going to start with Nebuchadnezzar praising the Lord, and then he's going to talk about what happened to him. So you need to know, like, it happened to him, then he praised the Lord. And so he's writing so everybody knows, hey, God's God, and I am not, right? And so Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations and people of every language who live on the earth. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the most high God has performed for me. Time out. It is so awesome to me that God used Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael to actually get the king of Babylon saved. Like they, they didn't do it with, with criticism or judgment or condemnation or casting stones. In fact, in this chapter, when, when Daniel understands the dream is not good news for Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't say, hey, I told you, mm-hmm, going to burn in hell. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> Every time he does that, I, I think I've just been electrocuted. Um, it's a scary moment for me. But, but he's like, he didn't say, I told you. I told you this wasn't going to go well for you. I told you you should have turned or burned, baby. No, Daniel actually comes in and says, oh, king, I'm sorry. I really wish this was talking about your enemies and not talking about you. And so I'm just saying the way we change the culture is through influence, not condemnation, right? And so anyway, King Nebuchadnezzar, it's, it's amazing. This is why we're studying this book. Verse three, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar says, how great are your signs, how mighty your wonders his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Verse 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. There's that self-reliant, self-promoting, self-reliant. And he said, I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in bed, and the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. And so he has this dream, and no one can really interpret it. So Daniel comes. God had given Daniel the ability to interpret dreams, and Daniel comes. And I mean, kudos to Daniel because he could have been killed because the dream's not good news. And so if he really told the king what the dream meant, he could have been killed. 
But remember, he's trying to influence culture and make a stand for God in a culture that uh, bows to everything else. And so he actually says, oh, king, I hate to tell you this, but here's what's going to happen. See, in the dream, King Nebuchadnezzar saw this big tree and all these animals were kind of living under the tree and all these different birds and things were living in the tree. And you have to understand King Nebuchadnezzar at this time, Babylon was like the world power. It was like the Alexander the Great. It was like the Roman Empire kind of thing. It was like King Nebuchadnezzar had conquered so much. He was, he was the big boy, right? And, and so in this dream, he sees this big tree and then a messenger from God comes and cuts the tree down, but leaves a stump. And basically Daniel says, here's, here's what the dream means for seven years. Um, you're going to lose your sanity. You're going to go crazy. And your kingdom is going to be torn away from you and you're going to eat grass like an ox and your hair is going to grow out and your fingernails are going to grow out and you're going to be crazy until you acknowledge that heaven reigns over everything. So he, he gives him that word and even says, hey, you might consider repentance. Good help, you know. And then we fast forward to Daniel 4 verse 28. It says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I am and there is none besides me. And I mean, he was actually looking at one of the seven wonders of the world. He was actually looking at the hanging gardens of Babylon. And, and here's what he's saying. I made that plant. I made that tree grow. Look at what I have there. I am. There's none besides me. And then it says this, even as the words were on his lips, <laughs> I keep hearing Scooby-Doo, Reggie. you know, it's like it's bad news coming. A voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you. King Nebuchadnezzar, your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. I call this message, are you ready for this? Cultural Kool-Aid and Kingdom Clarity. Cultural Kool-Aid and Kingdom Clarity, and that's how, that's how we're going to break the message apart. So I'm going to talk about the cultural Kool-Aid of Babylon. I am, and there is none besides me, and the result of that is always confusion. So let's talk about the cultural Kool-Aid, and here's what the cultural Kool-Aid really is. The culture is self-reliant and God-defiant. Self-reliant and God-defiant. So let's talk about self-reliant. Number one, self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. We see this in Daniel 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar says, I was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I don't need God. Look, look at how good I'm doing. Look at how much... Listen, I can live without God. I can live my way. I don't need his standard. I don't need his way. I don't even need his blessing. I'm good enough. I got this. Self-sufficient. I can live without God. I don't need him really for anything. 
And before we say, wait, 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 we're believers and we would never be self-sufficient because we know that's the wrong answer. I think one of the ways, if we're just being honest, and church is a scary place to be honest, being honest could change your life forever. But if we're being honest, I think one of the ways we see our self-sufficiency as believers is in our prayerlessness. Because isn't this kind of human nature? And I deal with it the same as you. So it's not like I got all this figured out. But isn't it kind of true? I know in my life, when things are going well, I'm tempted to pray less. And isn't it true that as humans, when the fit hits the shan, all of a sudden we're like, oh, we got to call everybody we know. You got to pray. I got to pray. We got to call a holy assembly. We got to get together. We got to pray until everything starts going good again. I remember um, being on staff at a church years ago. Julie and I had just been married. And, um, and so I was on staff. And the church was about the size of our church, about you know, 13, 1,400 people. And, um, and then we didn't have as many services because we had a bigger building. Um, but I remember the morning of 9-11. And I remember walking in the office and we had the TV on and, and uh, one of the planes had struck the building, the first tower, and then the second plane hit the, hit the next tower. And it wasn't very long. The phone in the office just started ringing. And it was all the church people saying, hey, 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 can we have a prayer meeting? We need to pray. We need to pray, which is a good thing, by the way. I'm not saying you shouldn't run to God when things happen. But what I knew was we had 6 a.m. prayer every morning because I was on staff. And we'd have 12 or 15 people, kind of like when we call a prayer meeting here. We have 9 a.m. prayer on Saturdays. Uh, during 21 days of prayer and fasting in January, we have nine prayer meetings, uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays for those three weeks. We have prayer meetings, and we'll have 12 or 15 people, and we celebrate, and we pray, and we pray for you. And it's fantastic. But all of a sudden, where we couldn't get 20 people at a prayer meeting, we, it's the first and only time I saw a church packed for a prayer meeting. Why? Because tragedy had happened. And that's human nature. And I think sometimes we need to acknowledge that our tendency is to be more self-sufficient when things are going well. And we wouldn't call it that, but I think our prayerlessness, because prayer is saying, no, 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 I'm going to depend on God. And I think one of the ways to stay God dependent, if you will, one of the ways to make sure that we depend on God is to stay consistent in prayer. For me, I have a standing appointment with God, um, and, and he seems to show up every time. But I'm like, hey, I schedule you know, this, and I schedule that, and I got this, and I got that, and I'm going to have a time to meet with God, and I'm going to make sure I meet with God because I need to meet with God because I don't know what I'm doing most of the time, and I know I sure can't do it without him. And I think this is kind of the great travesty in our nation is God comes into your life where he's invited to come in. And I think so many times tragedies happen and we're like, well, where's God? And God's saying, hey, I'm here, but you have disinvited me. You've told me you don't need me in your schools. You've told me you don't need me in your government. You've told me you don't need me in, in the, the offices of officials. And so I only come, 
the earth I've given to the sons of man, and I'm only going to come where I'm invited. But if you would invite me, I desire to be there, and I desire to make myself seen, and I desire to heal and restore. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and if they'll invite me, I will come and I will heal, but not until they invite me. And prayer is how we invite God into the situations of our lives. Self-sufficiency, how about this self-reliant Kool-Aid self-sufficiency? How about this one, self-indulging, self-indulging. Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar after he tells him what the dream means, he says, hey, your majesty, this is Daniel 4, 27. He says, hey, your majesty, um, please accept some advice from me. Like Daniel saying, I know something you could try. It's kind of like what I do on the weekends. I say, hey, hey, I don't know how things are going, but I know a few things you could try. Right? And so Daniel's kind of to Nebuchadnezzar say, hey, I know some things you could try. How about this? How about this? Renounce your sins and do good. <laughs> you know, you could try this, Nebuchadnezzar. Like, here's the dream. Here's what it means. But you could try renouncing your sin. Why? Sin is all about indulging. Sin is all about saying, I know more than God. I know better than God. I can do it my way. And here's what he's saying. He's like, hey, don't live that way. Listen, we live in a hedonistic culture. What does that mean? That means a self-indulging. It means this. If it feels good, that's just what we do. Like it feels good. And if it feels good, it doesn't hurt anybody. And sometimes if it feels good and it does hurt somebody. But hey, if it feels good, that's just what we do. It's a hedonistic culture. And we'll make this argument like, well, this is how I feel. This is my human desire. And surely if God is a good God, he, he wouldn't tell me what I feel is wrong. And this is what I would say. Have you read the Bible? Specifically, the book of Galatians, say chapter 5. Because here's what Paul says. Your human desire is always going to be evil. And here's what he's going to say. You can never find your human desire will never lead you to the righteous standard of God. And your human desire will never lead you to God's standard of morality. He's saying, in fact, your human desire and God are in opposition with each other. And you're going to have to decide if you're going to live by human desire or you're going to live by, by what God says. And so this argument, listen, this argument of, well, if it feels good, it can't be wrong. Let me help you with that. Let me help you with that. Yes, it can. According to the Bible, yes, it can. If it feels good, that doesn't make it right. In fact, I can prove this with this group of people because every person in here has been tempted to do something that would have felt good, but you knew it wasn't right. I stood um, before, I was in a prison with one of our ministries we support, and I was speaking to this group of men, and it's packed out, and, and this is what I told them. I said, guys, I want to level the playing field. I said, men, the only difference between me and you is you did what I thought about. The sin I committed in my heart, you committed in action. So there's really no difference between us at all, because I've wanted to do some of the things you probably have done that put you in this place. Why is that? Because human desire will never lead you towards the righteousness of God. But we live in a culture that says, oh, it feels good, man. It's got to be okay because it feels good. It doesn't work across the board. Um, so this self-reliant Kool-Aid is um, self-sufficient, self-indulging. How about this? Self-exalting. 
Daniel 4 verse 30 said, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built for my mighty power and the glory I am? And there, look how great I am. Then sings my soul. Myself, I sing to thee. How great I am. How great I am. Right? This is self-exalting. Listen, King Nebuchadnezzar went insane. And, and let me tell you why he went insane. Because flesh can never be worshipped. He went insane for the same reason that Brittany shaved her head. And I'm not, not even trying to be funny. I'm just saying flesh cannot be worshipped. And we look at these Hollywood stars and I would never want to be them. Right? I, I don't understand that pressure or what it's like having everybody watch your life like that. I mean, to a small degree in a small town I do, but outside of that I don't. But the reason they go crazy is because flesh can't be worshipped. And it becomes all about them and I am and there's none besides me and, and they are exalted. And listen, this is, this is part of the Babylonian culture. Listen, listen, I don't know if y'all noticed this, but we kind of live in a selfie culture. If you don't believe me, check out Instagram when you leave here or Facebook. It's like, here I am, here I am now, here I am with my hair up, here I am with my hair down. Here I am at the gym, here I am drinking my water at the gym, here I am lifting weight at the gym. Here's what I had for dinner. I mean, it's like, we don't care. You know what I'm saying? Like, the other day I was trying to work out. I couldn't get to the weights because there was this, this lady who, and I don't mean this in a bad way, needed to be at the gym. I was proud of her for being at the gym, but she was all wrapped up in herself. And she had these five pound weights and she's like, and I'm like, I just, I need, could I borrow the, like, Hi. <laughs> Um, I know they put a mirror there, which I think was a bad idea. Um, but could I get around you just to get the weight so I could go over in the corner? Cause I don't want to watch myself work out any more than you want to watch me work out. Cause it is ugly. <laughs> Nobody wants to see my jiggle wiggle. That's all I'm saying. You don't want to see me working out. I don't want to see me working out. You're never going to find a picture of me working out. Somebody takes a picture of me working out, I'm going to, I'm going to break their phone. <laughs> but I'm just saying, we live in this selfie culture. And Paul told Timothy, he said, hey, as you, as you get closer to the end, men are going to be lovers of themselves. They're going to love them. They're going to exalt themselves. They're going to lift themselves up. And so this self-reliant, God-defiant. So let's talk about God-defiant. God defined three things under this real quick. Number one, the culture is God demoting. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, verse 8, when he calls Daniel, he said, finally, Daniel came to my presence and I told him the dream. And then watch this. He says, he's called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, lowercase g, and the spirits of the holy gods, lowercase g, is in him. Here's what our culture says. You can have your God as long as he's one of many gods. Like, you're a Christian? Totally cool. I'm a Buddhist. It's awesome, man. Proud of you. You're a Christian? Totally good. I, I'm, I'm Muslim. You're, you're a Christian? Hey, that's cool. I'm a Hindu. We have like, you know, eight billion gods. So I'm okay if you have a God as long as he's one of many gods. He doesn't get any preferential airtime. We, we don't lift him up. As long as we don't lift him up any higher than any other God, we're totally cool. And if you'll just acknowledge that your God is one of many gods, 
Just, just like you can have your God, just don't say my God's not my God, you know? And this is what, is this not what our culture does? And, and it, the problem is it doesn't stop at God demoting. It becomes God degrading because now it's like, wait a second, your God is below my God. Like you want to start a riot, say Jesus Christ in a non-cursing way, obviously, but say Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, whoa, you can't pray in his name. Like I, I was amazed because we live, like I said, we used to live, that's why I said I miss Mayberry. Because back in Mayberry, people, even if they didn't believe in God, they respected your faith and your conviction. But now it seems like if you're a Hindu or a Muslim or an atheist, you have more rights than a Christian. It can feel that way. I'm not trying to inside a ride. I'm just saying to me when I watch the news, it feels that way. And I was watching this show. And when I tell you the show, you're going to laugh because they're all nuts on there. And if you love the show, um, may the Lord be with you. But, but it was this clip. I don't watch it. I saw the clip on the news. But uh, it was this clip of The View, you know, the crazy ladies that they gave a show to. And, um, and they were making fun and mocking our vice president because he said that not only does he pray to God, but he believes God speaks to him. And they didn't just make fun. They said that's mental. That is the definition of mental illness. But see, my Bible says, Jesus said, you're the sheep of my pastor and my sheep will hear my voice. I've been equipped to hear the voice of my father. And that's not mental illness. That's truth. Are, are you with me? And so I was self-demoting. In fact, I saw this. This came out, I think, this last week. Uh, Greg Laurie, who does um, the Harvest America rallies. Uh, he was in AT&T Stadium like a year or two ago. Some of you may have gone to that. And, and he packs it out, has all the different musical artists, and then preaches the gospel. And, and he'll see thousands make decisions for Christ. And so he was having or is having an upcoming Harvest America rally in Southern California. And so as he does, he buys advertisements like billboards, that type of thing. So he had some billboards at an outdoor Southern California mall. And there was this huge outcry, so much so they took them down, the people that they had paid to put them up. And here's what it was. It, the, the billboard didn't say, turn or burn, you're all going in hell, we're right and you're wrong. It didn't say anything. It simply had Greg Laurie holding a microphone and a black book. It didn't say Holy Bible. It didn't have a cross on it, just a black book. And they just had the information about, hey, Harvest, Southern California, you know, Anaheim Stadium or wherever it was, and, and here you go. And, and here's why they took it down. Because the thought of that being a Bible was offensive. It didn't say Bible, didn't have a cross, but they assumed it was a Bible, which was accurate, and because it was a Bible. Now, they can put scantily clad women up there selling anything they want. They can sell tobacco, sell alcohol, sell cosmetics, sell plastic surgery. You know what I'm saying? They could advertise an abortion clinic. That is not offensive, but the thought that that could be a Bible created outrage. It's not just, um, it's not just that it's, God demoting, but it's God degrading. And then it's also God defaming. God defaming. God isn't good. This goes back to just, he's not good. How would a good God tell you that what you feel so strongly is wrong? And here's what I'll say. The definition of a good God is one who tells you 
when you're in error. That's the definition, right? If you love people, you don't let them run off a cliff. You tell them, hey, the road ends right up there. And that next step has a long fall with it. The definition of love is giving truth. So obviously a loving God is always going to call all of us to a righteous standard. Because that's the definition of love, right? That's that cultural Kool-Aid. It's self-reliant and God-defiant. Let's talk about kingdom clarity. Kingdom clarity. So what is kingdom clarity? Well, it's God-dependent and self-denying. Kingdom clarity. God-dependent, self-denying. Let me, let me show you this. Daniel 4, verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar says, At the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, watch this because this is key, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. What's the result of the Babylonian culture? Confusion. How do you get the confusion to leave? How do you find clarity? Lift your eyes to heaven. What does Babylon cause? Confusion. How do I get clarity? King Nebuchadnezzar said, when I lifted my eyes towards heaven, the confusion left and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the most high. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is the eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done at the same time that my sanity... Now watch this, because remember, God isn't for you. God doesn't want you to have a good life, to have a successful life. God doesn't want you to enjoy anything. Watch this, watch this. At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. Watch this. I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. You're telling me God doesn't want good? No. God wants good for all of you, and he knows how to get you from where you're at to what's good, but you're going to have to trust him and not the culture of Babylon. God has a good plan for you to prosper and give you hope. And anything else that says anything else is a lie. And then Nebuchadnezzar, verse 37, and here's what I want to talk about. He said, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, watch praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Everybody say, oh me, oh me. So here's the thing, kingdom clarity, God-dependent, self-denying. Real quick, three things under this. Here's what King Nebuchadnezzar said. Number one, he said, I'm going to exalt God. If you want the confusion to leave, you have to exalt God, right? He said, I'm going to exalt God. Exalt is a word we would use for worship. It's a word we would use for worship. It means to lift up right? And I don't know if you know this, but the battle since before the ages was all about worship. Remember Satan when he's cast out of heaven for being self-promoting and God-demoting, right? Self-reliant, God-defiant. What was the battle about? He said, I, I, I was created, Satan was created to be the worship leader of heaven and lead the angels in worship to God. And then all of a sudden he thought, I'm so good at this, they should worship me. And he said, in fact, I'm so awesome, I should have God's throne." right? Self-reliant, God-defiant, self-promoting, 
God demoting, I am, and there is none besides me. And so there was this uprising in heaven with Satan and about a third of the angels. It lasted almost a millisecond. God blew his nose and Satan and all his imps landed out of heaven. God and Satan are not on equal ground. God's eternal. He has no beginning and no ending. Satan was a created being. He has a beginning. He also has an ending. He's gonna, it's going to end in a lake day for him. He's going to the lake. Of, of fire, but it's the lake. But anyways, <laughs> so, um, so, <laughs> but here's what he said. He said, I, I am, I want to be worshiped. And here's what God said. You know what? I'm going to cast you down. I'm going to raise up. I'm going to create a son, Adam. I'm going to create a people and I'm going to give them the free will to worship me or not worship me. And then Satan, I'm going to defeat you with the ones who choose to worship me because you refuse to worship me. And so this whole battle that we see throughout the Bible, in fact, you can read that Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, um, but this whole battle is all about worship. Now, here's, here's what Satan is so crafty about. Remember, there's no middle ground. But what he does is, is he's like, well, if I can't get you to worship me, I'll just get you to worship yourself. I'll just get you to exalt yourself like King Nebuchadnezzar. I am, there's none besides me. And when we do that, the confusion comes because we weren't made to be worshiped. And so if we're going to live in clarity, if we're going to get the confusion to leave, we have to say, hey, I'm going to exalt God with my life. I'm going to lift him up. I'm going to let every part of my life exalt him. Not just, this is why, I don't know if y'all have noticed, but we always seem to have more people in the building when worship's coming to an end than when we first start worship. And that's not to criticize or to judge. That's just to say there really is a battle over worship. We see it every weekend, right? And it, like you plan to be here on time and the alarm didn't go off and the kid put oatmeal on their sister's head, you know, and whatever happened, right? The car had a flat. There's a battle over worship. But the way that we live in clarity is we keep choosing to worship, but not just on the weekend. We say, no, 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 my life is the worship. My life is going to exalt God. I'm going to exalt God in the way I do business. I'm going to exalt God with the way I interact with people at the grocery store. I'm going to exalt God with the way I lead my family. I'm going to exalt God in all of my relationships. I'm going to exalt God when I'm by myself and no one's looking. I'm going to exalt God when I'm on this date. I'm going to live my life to exalt God. That's how we come to clarity, right? So, so this uh, God-dependent, self-denying life is number one, exalting God. Number two, acknowledge God. This is what King Nebuchadnezzar, he said. He said, all his ways are just, all his ways are right. And so what we're gonna say is, hey, heaven reigns. Heaven is supreme. And all of God's ways are right. What I want, what I feel may not be right. I have to trust in his way. I have to say, God, your way is right, right? Um, Jesus said, "My sanctify them or transform them by your truth. Your word is truth. And here's the thing our culture says, well, you can have your truth and I can have my truth. We call it relative truth. But the idea of relative truth is self-deprecating at best. And here's why. The idea of relative truth is posing an absolute while saying there is no absolute. Because truth, by definition, has to be restrictive. It has to be absolute. If truth is not restrictive, there's no difference between truth and error. 
So we could say, well, you have my error and I have your error. And we would be, you would have your error, I have my error. Hey, we're all wrong. It's more, it's more possible that we're all wrong than we're all right. Because truth has to be absolute. Truth has to be restrictive. So you cannot say, well, I have my truth and you have your truth. It's relative truth because relative truth is saying there's an absolute while saying there's not an absolute. In other words, you're saying there is absolutely not an absolute truth. Welcome to Babylon where everything's confusing. Right? And so what we say is same thing King Nebuchadnezzar. No, no. You know what? Regardless of how I feel, his word's truth. I'm going to live by his word. I'm going to, I'm going to, listen, a lot of people claim to have truth. One man claimed to be truth. He said, John 14, six, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one, there is no other way besides me. One man claimed to be truth. And here's what we're going to say. Okay, God, I'm going to live by your truth. Your word is truth. And this is what Jesus said. And this is what we need to understand. Following Jesus, the only way to to follow Jesus is you're going to have to deny yourself. You can't hold on to your truth and hold on to his truth. In fact, he said, hey, you want to follow me? You're going to have to deny yourself. In other words, you're not going to get to say my way is right and your way is right. You're going to have to pick. Is it your way or my way? Am I right or are you right? And so here's what he said. He said, hey, this is that God-dependent, self-denying. Okay, you're right, and I have to deny what I feel, what I want, what I desire, if I'm going to walk in your truth. Right? It exalts God, and it acknowledges God. And then here's the last thing. You humble yourself. Like if I want to live in clarity and not the confusion of Babylon, I exalt God, I acknowledge God, and then, and then I humble myself. This is what King Nebuchadnezzar said. He said, he's able to humble. 1 Peter 5 verse 6 says it this way. It says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so he can lift you up. Here's what I can tell you. Humility is coming like the train that doesn't stop. And probably, I know I have, I can give you story after story about where I could have humbled myself and didn't and got hit by the train, right? And a lot of you probably have your own testimony, like we could testify, right? But here's what I'm saying, humility's coming. And humility, C.S. Lewis said this way, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. And what we're saying is, no, God, we're going to keep ourselves humble under you. We're going to keep ourselves submitted under you. We're going to let you be God. We're going to say you are and there is none besides you and not we are and there is none besides us. Because here's the truth of it. Can I tell you? Everyone is going to say he's God. The Bible says it this way. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Everyone's going to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. It's not a question of will you bow, it's a question of will you bow now or then? Because Hitler is going to bow his knee to a very Jewish Jesus and say, you are and there's none besides you. Are you with me? And every person that has opposed God and opposed his believers, 
they're all, even if they've already passed, they're still, there is a day when them along with all of us are going to bow and we're going to say, you are, and there is none besides you. And we can choose whether we want to bow now or whether we want to bow then. And here's what Daniel would say, like he said to King Nebuchadnezzar, I would suggest just some advice bow today. Like today's a good time, right? This would be a good, good spot for you to bend your knee and say that he is God and you are not. Humility is coming, right? It is coming and you can't stop it, but you can choose when you participate, right? And that's why he said, humble yourselves. That's what Peter said, humble yourself. James says the same thing, humble yourselves. It's always like, how do I humble myself? Well, Peter goes on in verse six, he says, humble yourselves in the mighty hand of God. Verse 7, he says, casting all your care on him. Here's what he says. Choose to depend on him. Like if you want to stay in a place of humility, every day get up and say, God, I can't do this day without you. I can't do this relationship without you. I can't, do, I can't steward these finances without you. I can't do my job without you. Listen, every morning in my appointment with God, I say, God, just I know you don't need to be reminded, but I do. I can't do this without you. And I'll be the first to bow my knee this morning and say, you're God and I'm not, and I can't do this without you. And if I'm going to do this, you're going to have to help a whole lot. And that's how, listen, that's how we stay humble under God. Listen, you want the confusion to leave? You want the confusion to leave? Exalt God, acknowledge God, humble yourself. If you're confused today and you're like, I don't know what my orientation is. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what's going on. Let me help you. Lift your eyes towards heaven and acknowledge that he is God and you are not. Exalt him. Acknowledge him. Humble yourself and clarity will come. Amen. Can you give God praise for that word? Why don't you stand with me and...